Hello, it's Thursday 18th of August. I'm Hannah Pearson. On today's show, Gary Bowerman and I will once again sift through the top 10 travel stories of the week in the region. So let's get started. This is the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Hello, wherever you are in the world, and thanks for listening in. So today, Hannah and I are taking stock of the big travel and tourism stories making news in Southeast Asia this week. Stay tuned as we've got updates from Brunei, Cambodia, Indonesia, Singapore, Thailand, Vietnam, and the Philippines. Plus, we'll be talking about cruise travel, airlines, and tourism promotions. So, Hannah, let's dive straight in. And for our first story this week, we're heading to New Zealand although the theme is, has a very strong re- resonance for here in Southeast Asia. Uh, Hannah, I'm going to test you here. Do you, do you remember this quote? We will filter tourists that come visit. We don't want backpackers to come so that Bali remains clean, where the people who come are of quality. Do you remember that quote? <laughs> I do. I mean, you gave me a bit of a clue there with Bali. I think, was that, was that Luhut, the, the maritime investment uh, minister from Indonesia? It was, and it was almost exactly a year ago. It was September last year. So that story is that, you know, that quote, although he retracted it later, has lingered around in terms of what is Indonesia's tourism policy regarding backpackers. And now New Zealand has weighed into the, the debate. The tourism minister in New Zealand, New Zealand is launching a new tourism campaign. It's fully opened its borders um, from the beginning of August, this sort of phased reopening in three stages. And it seems to be doing quite well. The, the tourism uh, arrivals figures for June were, were pretty strong, although from key markets, mostly from long-haul markets. Um, but the tourism has now weighed into, into this debate and again has started talking about quality tourism. Now, he hasn't quite gone down the same line as Lahoot, but listen to this quote. We are going to welcome backpackers, but we are not going to target the people who put on Facebook how they can travel around our country for $10 a day eating two-minute noodles. Hannah, I almost ate my microphone. Go on, you, you take on from there. Oh, I just, when are tourism ministers going to stop doing this? <laughs> Can't they learn from one another about the different faux pas that they each make? I mean, of course, you know, every, I think every tourism ministry right now wants quality tourists. Of course, they, you know, they, they want fewer tourists, but they want the same tourism revenue and so you do the maths on a back of an envelope and of course that becomes quality tourists you want them to spend much more but I think you don't need to be it's so polarizing about it I, I think you know there are a lot of backpackers and they do support the community and we've said this again and we've had Stuart McDonald um, on the podcast several times who's also really harped on this same message as well and the fact that backpackers do contribute a lot to the communities. They tend to stay around for longer. They tend to buy from from smaller um, establishments, um, which then supports the whole community at large. Whereas there was some quite interesting um, stats in one of the articles, wasn't there, Gary, about the fact that you know these high-quality, big-spending tourists often have a much higher environmental footprint um, and don't necessarily contribute more to the economy either, do they? No, and there was obviously this, this, these comments, I think because of the strength of them, and as you say, just the condescending nature of what he said, uh, really stimulated a real backlash, a real discussion in 
New Zealand, where there has been an ongoing tourism debate about the future of tourism, about the future of the environment, particularly as New Zealand promotes itself as 100% pure. You know, it's very, very proud of its natural environments, quite rightly so, and it does want to protect them. Um, but there were two kind of, I think, elements where the industry sort of pushed back on this. And one was that, you know, the backpacker economy is important to, to New Zealand. People go there on working uh, holiday visas. So they travel around the country, stay for longer, but they also do some work while they're there. I think it was around about 65,000 backpackers went to New Zealand in 2019. Now you could say 65,000, not a huge amount. But, you know, if you actually extrapolate that across the number of nights that they stayed, the amount that they spent, and apparently they stayed in 27,000 beds around the country. Now you can see how that supports small communities, as you said, Hannah. And the other point that I thought was very interesting that was pointed out from the tourism industry this week was that New Zealanders themselves, particularly young New Zealanders, are themselves proud backpackers. They love to travel around the world as uh, budget travelers, enjoying experiences and, and living on a shoestring. Um, and wouldn't it be you know, somewhat hypocritical to say, well, we don't want backpackers to come here, but we like our young people to go and backpack around the world. And I thought that was quite a strong message, uh, which seems to have got through in, in New Zealand. Yeah, it just it just amazes me. Like I said, you know, it's just one tourism minister after the other saying exactly the same thing and then having to retract it <laughs> a couple of weeks later when they realize what a what chaos they have said with their words. It's just again, it's I just feel like we keep saying the same things over and over again, Gary. But I think, you know, government ministers, particularly when it comes to tourism, now it's such a fragile time for recovery they should be really, really careful with their words. And they should know that the impact that they have of your throwaway comment here or, a, you know, a faux pas there can really impact the, the whole tourism ecosystem, can't it? It can. And, and then I do wonder also whether, you know, these, these, this posturing that, that you're starting to hear, um, whether it just fades away. I mean, if you, if you go back, I mean, Stuart pointed this out, if you go back to like 2012, 2013, you know, some of the tourism boards, Thailand, for example, they used to actually, I wouldn't say promote backpacker tourism, but it, it was on the agenda and then it completely disappeared. But backpackers didn't disappear. They still continued going to Thailand. They, they still will in future and, and backpackers will continue to go to New Zealand. It just, you just wonder whether this is just political point scoring at the moment. Actually, ultimately, over the long term, will it actually have any impact whatsoever? I, I mean, I don't know. It, it's really hard to say. But Let's come on to point two, Hannah, because talking about um, ministers getting themselves in trouble and, and in a real mess over high quality tourism, um, let's move to Commodore. <laughs> yeah, this is a nice transition. So, of course, I, you know, one, one of the big stories coming out from Indonesia over the past few weeks has been this proposed price increase uh, for the Komodo Islands. This was it was a huge hike and it was proposed to be about 250 US dollars. Uh, for international tourists for an annual pass. Local tourism stakeholders were up in arms about this. They were even striking and the strike was later called off. Um, towards the end of last week, the East Nusa Tengara provincial government actually announced that that proposed entry fee would be postponed. So it was meant to come into effect from the 1st of August and they announced that it would now be postponed until the 1st of January next year. Um, so it's a little bit walking back on that. And, you know, I, I think the tourism industry, like I said, was really angry. I, th I think they felt that there wasn't much consultation done with this, that the, the steps were kind of taken and that this price, heat, price hike was just announced without really considering the consequences that that might have on the number of visitors who would then, you know, frequent these, um, these establishments. And 
you know, in, in a later twist to this, and, and this was just, um, I think, yesterday, Jokowi, the, the Minister of Tourism, has now said that there will be a trial application for these entrance tickets before the 1st of January. So it's another kind of walking. So they, they announced this, fi- this fee hike, then they postponed it to the 1st of January, and now they're saying, oh, actually, maybe we will implement it, but as a pilot, but before the 1st of January. But we don't know what date that's going to happen yet. We're, we're just announcing that we, we're going to do that, and you'll be able to try out this new system. It makes it very difficult, I think, for tourism stakeholders to to do any kind of planning, doesn't it? Yeah, and local communities. I think you know the the, the strike that was supposed to to start war did start at the beginning of August in the Commodore area. Um, was local people, as you said, weren't consulted. All of a sudden, this was just imposed upon them, um, and it, you know potentially impacts not just their livelihoods but their lives, their lifestyles in, in future. There just seems, as you say, to be no integrated policy here. And and now, as you go forward, they, they seem to be backtracking by saying. You know, there's going to be trial applications of this kind of thing. There just seems to be absolutely no policy whatsoever. It was an announcement of something that didn't work. And then, and then how do you get around it? It's difficult for the industry. It's difficult for governments. It's difficult for travelers at the moment. But, you know, just putting in place these barriers to a recovery, as you said, Hannah, just seems to be just horribly counterproductive. Yeah. An interesting development that there was kind of, it didn't get a lot of press actually, and I actually missed it the, in the original article. This is for Thailand, and of course we've been talking about this 300 Thai baht tourist fee for for the longest time, and Thailand has been talking about this tourist fee. I think, Gary, you pointed that out in one of our last top 10, we, we discussed this, didn't we, um, a while back. For, for, for years and years they've been discussing this possibility of implementing it. And again, the dates have been pushed back and pushed back. And actually, um, a week or so ago, the Tourism and Sports Minister told the Straits Times that its implementation was likely to only be in one to two years' time now because they really need to focus on the recovery of the Thai tourism industry. So again, it's this, we're going to impose a fee. Oh, no, we're going to delay it. We're going to delay it. Is it actually going to happen? It's you say it's it's more like ideas but then they're announced as policy and then it just becomes horribly messy yeah totally agree which leads us very nicely into item three hannah for our top 10 current stories in travel and tourism in southeast asia and that's the thai bart which really this is at the root of a lot of what you were talking about with the with the thai tourism fee so up until about a week ago the thai bart had rebounded quite strongly against the US dollar. It had been slumping for most part of this year, had really, really gone on a downward scale. And then it started to rebound when Thailand announced its the strength of its, well, its supposed strength of its tourism recovery and its anticipation that it would be able to attract 10 million tourists this year. So that saw the that was part of the reason that the Thai baht started to rebound. So then we started to see all these media stories about how Asian currencies, which generally have been pretty weak against the US dollar, the US dollar is strong at the moment, and the US Fed continues to hike rates, and that will support the growth of the dollar. Um, But the Thai baht was rebounding until this week, where it has gone into a slump again. So all of those positive stories last week about how the Thai baht was rebounding, it has now gone into reverse, and there are a number of reasons for this. One of them, quite, quite obviously, is the fact that Thailand reported quite weak trade data this week. Uh, it's also increased interest rates for the first time in three years. Its inbound investment figures are much lower than expected. So the economy isn't really that strong. And I think this is showing that tourism, although it is you know, a, a significant part of the economy, there are much other important parts to the Thai economy, which let's n- not forget is the second largest 
economy in our region. And I think this just shows that all of these economic factors that are around us at the moment, Hannah, they're sort of in the distance, up close, these potential uh, recessionary nausea that we're feeling about the end of the, the year in the world are impacting absolutely everything right now, which makes it very, very difficult to predict anything at all, whether it's currencies, whether it's tourism flows, whether it's airline prices, all of these things. We're just in a real period of flux, it seems to me. Yeah, absolutely. I'd agree with that. And I, I think you're right. You know, it's, it's just so hard to predict anything, <laughs> let alone tourism numbers. And, you know, you, you could have argued, okay, if you're looking at the Thai Baht, the, the Thai government has previously argued, oh, the weakening is a good thing because it means, you know, tourists are going to get more value for their money. And then I suppose when it rebounded, they would probably have had to have been thinking, how are we going to change this narrative? But now it's weakened again. They don't need to, I suppose. And so, like you say, really difficult, again, for, for anybody to, to forecast anything right now. It's, uh, yeah, the world is in flux, like you said. The world is in flux. So let's move on to number four, Hannah. And we're moving to Vietnam. And this is a good story. This is one of your selections. Tell us more. <laughs> yeah. So this is Vietnam and the fact that they started to issue new passports. And that obviously sounds great. And we saw in the media lots of photos of uh, Vietnamese people queuing up to receive these new passports, excited about... <laughs> I suppose, going going for travels uh, for the first time in a long time. And then they ran into a difficulty. Um, so first of all, Germany announced that they weren't going to issue visas for holders of Vietnam's new passports. Then Spain announced the same. And then the Czech Republic. Um, and more recently, Finland as well. And the whole issue um, that they have with these is because the new passports don't record the place of birth which the Schengen countries are saying is a vital piece of information. They need it. Vietnam has argued, well, you know, technically our passports conform to the ICAO um, regulations and you don't necessarily need that on there. And they said, anyhow, we're going to be issuing new passports with chips soon that will have that identity. But basically, it's been a big mess. Um, Vietnam have now kind of walked back on that and said, they will start to make manual adjustments to people's passports who do need that information added in and they can bring it back um, and can be added in so that they can get these Schengen visas. But it's just created a real mess, you know, particularly if you're thinking about outbound travel. Um, and it's difficult enough sometimes to get appointments for, for these European countries anyway to get your Schengen visa. And we've seen, you know, big queues in other countries. But then also compounded by the fact, you know, you've, you've waited for you know, a couple of years to get your passport, you get your passport, and now you find you actually can't travel still because it's not being recognized, or you've got to go and do this extra manual bit of making sure that that place of birth information is recorded in it. It's really troublesome for them. Um, you know, agents have had to cancel things, people have had to change plans. Um, again, it's just one of those policies that just seems a bit strange. Um, and you know, I think Mike Tataski discussed this recently as well in his um, Vietnam Weekly newsletter, which is a great newsletter. You should definitely go and subscribe to that. And just said, well, you know, if, if, if the government knew that they were going to be issuing these passports with chips later on, why did they go ahead and issue these passports before the chips were ready? No good answer for that. <laughs> no good answer. I don't think I can add anything to that, Hannah. That's, that's absolutely spot on. So let's move instead 
um, to the Philippines, where we're seeing or potentially seeing a little bit of shift in the way that it promotes and markets itself to the world. Yeah, we have. So, of course, you know, Philippines now a new president. And along with that, we have a new tourism secretary who is Christina Garcia Fresco. And she was actually a mayor um, from Cebu province. She's the daughter, uh, which I hadn't realized till recently, of the Cebu governor as well. And of course, Cebu is a big province, very reliant on tourism. So I think you could probably argue that she understands the tourism industry pretty well. But what's been very interesting is um, last week, she came out and said, it's possible that we will be changing that it's more fun in the Philippines slogan. And of course, this slogan, um, it's more fun in the Philippines has been around for years. Right? I think it's, it was launched in 2012, won a lot of international advertising awards. Um, it's really known for that. I mean, and she hasn't said for sure it's going to be changed, right? They're considering changing it. But that would be a big change, wouldn't it? That would be a a big change in direction for the Philippines. Yeah, it's a good slogan. I, th I think it's one of the best in, in Asia. They used it very well. They used it with a lot of color and a lot of fun. Um, some of their marketing around it, going back to sort of the mid part of last decade, was really, really good. I think Philippines really benefited from that. And I like the way that it sort of tapped international culture as well. You know, sometimes you often hear these, these tourism slogans, which are just sort of very generic. But that one I thought really, really sort of tapped into what the people feel about their own country and, and what people feel about their the tourism industry there. But then everything has to change, I guess. And also we're moving into a new era. Uh, a new government wants to stamp its authority, as you said, on the future, not just of tourism policy, but of, of economic policy. So perhaps it is time for a change. But, you know, replacing that one, I think, will be quite difficult. Yeah, exactly. I, th I think, you know, they made a good comment that, you know, perhaps travellers are now looking for things beyond fun, right? They're, they're looking for meaningful experiences and perhaps it's more fun doesn't quite encapsulate that perhaps that's almost too much of a surface level of what travelers are looking for when they travel and it should be really about that, that bigger meaning about what travel is which is a great point but like you said you know philippines is known for being it's more fun thailand's known for amazing malaysia's truly asia um don't yeah. overthink it don't <laughs> overthink it you can just imagine those focus groups right now going into meaningful and regenerative and how oh, please Bring back the fun. <laughs> I mean, that was one of our wishes, wasn't it, actually, for, <laughs> for, for travel at the beginning of the year. Bring back the fun to travel. So on that note, let's move into another story, which not particularly fun, but it's about two of the airlines in our region that have been through incredibly difficult times, not just over the pandemic period, but leading right up to that. That's Garuda Indonesia and Thai Airways. Both have been uh, restructuring uh, very, very deeply. Um, what, what's happening? What's the latest? Yeah, I mean, so like you said, they've both been going through these big restructuring um, processes right now. But it's quite interesting because in the same week, both governments have been coming out saying that they're putting in more funds into these airlines. And both governments have also been, been giving some kind of positive, well... I don't know positive is, but lukewarm, perhaps, words on um, on the progress. So, for example, the state-owned enterprises minister in Indonesia had said that um, the domestic flight business is quite promising as long as it's managed professionally. Um, whether that is is, is quite an absolute endorsement, we'll see. And it's on track, he said, but the next stages must be guided to help Garuda fly high again. So clearly they're, they think things are moving in the right way, but still a lot of work to do. I think that's the, the subtext there. 
and Thai Airways is again pretty similar. So it was announced last week that's going to receive some key financial support from the government. And in fact, it, it originally planned to seek external funding, I think, but as now the government will be able to provide, or at least state-owned banks will be able to provide the funding that it needs. And uh, the finance minister said, the situation in Thai Airways is much better. So you've got both of these kind of lukewarm responses, I suppose, to, to the airline's progress. Um, and it's like we know, I think both of these airlines have been embroiled in in scandals, in, in everything else, in, in just a lot of bureaucracy and it's going to take a long time to sort them out. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, they do need finances because of the, the huge nature of their debts and the debts they have to service. You know, the, the amount of debt interest repayments they have is just, it's just incredible. Both of those airlines are big flag carriers, very important in terms of that, you know, international branding, that kind of thing that governments love with, with their airlines. But they are in deep problems. And as you say, Hannah, you know, the problems are financial, but they're also management-based, they're also culture-based, and the turning around both of those isn't really just about putting them back on a financial footing. It's about actually then moving them into a new future where, you know, airlines that have actually been able to capitalize pretty well, you'd think Singapore Airlines there first up, um, will just be miles ahead of them in future by the time these airlines get, get back on an even keel. And I've always found Thai Airways quite an interesting airline in many, many ways because it is, you know, whenever I've flown on Thai Airways, it's one of the best airlines I've ever flown on in terms of service, uh, in terms of the way you're actually treated on board. It's a great airline, except when you actually dig deeper and you look at the the management level and and the finances, you know, that's where you really see the problems that it has. But on the service level and the customer level, I've always thought they were great. And it's, it's that real dichotomy, isn't it, of how businesses are actually run and how they seem to be run. Um, that that just delves so much, much deeper. Yeah, absolutely. So let's move on to seven then, Gary. And this was a pick from you, wasn't it? Singapore Tourism Board, what have they been up to? Yeah, okay. So Singapore has done, like many tourism boards are doing right now, Malaysia's done this, Thailand as well. And that's really reaching out and and going to the Indian market, trying to go and do roadshows to engage the travel trade, the media, and really, really make deeper connections. That was the the title of this, this event with, five cities and I thought it was quite interesting to to see the five cities that it chose in India. It chose Kolkata, Ahmedabad, Pune, Hyderabad and Bangalore. So it didn't go to Mumbai, it didn't go to Delhi. It went to cities that really sees potential growth in outbound travel from India where it can grow more flight routes I would guess and flight frequencies as well. Now we're seeing a lot of this. We're seeing this big trade engagement with India to, to try and generate more outbound tourism from India. That is starting to happen into some markets already, but there's greater potential. And Singapore obviously wants to tap into this. It does have great relations with, with India. I think I've said this before, that before the pandemic, it had started to attract more flights from not just from the big metro cities, but from secondary cities as well. But this time I thought part of its play was quite clever. It really promoted uh, fly cruising. Um, which it's done before with the Australian market, with the US market, European market, and the Chinese market. And now it's really trying to drive more fly cruise travel uh, from India through Singapore. I thought that was quite a clever play. Yeah, definitely. And like you say, it's, it's interesting the destinations they chose. They didn't hit those, the mainstream primary cities. They're going for more like the secondary cities as well. Um, and we've seen, you know, from arrivals into Singapore that India is one of the top markets right now um, for the country. So 
clearly they're seeing some potential and just going for it. So let's move on then to number eight. And this is about cruise lines, isn't it, Gary? Again, this is another one of your picks. Yeah, this one I thought it's it's there's not too much to this story, but this goes back to the Genting Cruise Line and its three brands, which collapsed early this year and then sort of moved out of the, the, the media attention. Really, It doesn't get too much attention paid to it. Cruise Industry News went and had a look at actually what the current state is with all of its cruise ships. So Star Cruises, Dream Cruises and the Genting Cruise Line as well. In terms of what's happened to them, and most of them just seem to be in limbo right now, waiting to see. Um, whether they, they get rebranded, whether they get sold. Uh, and it's quite an interesting story because cruising at the moment, there is this anticipation, isn't there, Hannah, worldwide that cruising is coming back and, you know, probably towards the back end of this year and certainly into next year. You know, cruise bookings will start to increase again, but you have this one company that couldn't make it through uh, the pandemic uh, and has some of these cruise ships which are which were actually being used um, on the uh, cruises to nowhere in, in Singapore, um, but at the moment are in limbo. And it's, uh, it's sort of, again, that, that story of influx that you know, we're seeing across the industries at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. You're right. I mean, we, we are slowly starting to see a pickup in cruising in other Southeast Asian countries. Now, for example, we can have, now there's a, a multi-port cruise itinerary from Singapore that calls in at Port Klang, it calls in in Penang, that that is starting to move but like like you say you know there are going to be these relics that are left over from from the pandemic and it's just sat there waiting for tourism to pick up or waiting to go and be scrapped but they're huge investments <laughs> for huge investments to be sat there just figuring out what to do with them is uh yeah, not great, I think. Absolutely, Hannah. So let's move on to number 9 and this is an airline story connecting to cities that perhaps deserve more traffic flying between them. Tell us a bit more, Hannah. Yeah, I mean, this is a fairly straightforward story. So Bamboo Airways has launched a Hanoi MCM rep route. Now, there are other airlines who are flying this route. But for me, it's it kind of jumped out to me because, you know, we have seen that one of the issues that is holding back Cambodia really is this lack of flight connections right now. And also the perception, at least from long haul, travelers that Cambodia is a multi-country itinerary right it's part of that it's not necessarily just a standalone and you know of course we know from Nick Ray from Jackie Chandu that there is so much more to Cambodia to be explored it can be explored in a mono destination but you know typically when long-haul travelers are coming in they are combining it with other countries and so just this additional flight route Hanoi Siem Reap that gives Cambodia again that extra opportunity to, you know, be sold in conjunction with Vietnam now to provide that extra connection to Vietnam for travelers to travel on to. And hopefully that will have a positive knock-on effect for the tourism industry as it comes up to their peak season. Yeah, absolutely agree, Hannah. And on to our final number 10 story for this week, which brings in our smallest country in the region, Brunei. It reopened its borders with Malaysia at the beginning of the month. And there was quite an interesting story published quite unusually on China Daily. I thought this was quite an interesting, it was quite an in-depth story about the travel across borders between Brunei and Malaysia. We don't tend to cover too many stories about cross-border travel, but this one was quite interesting, I thought, because it actually shows that although air travel into Brunei is relatively low, in 2019, a lot of travelers actually traveled across the borders, and that sometimes doesn't get included in, in the statistics. But Brunei is, is trying to attract more travelers via air, land and sea going forward. It's only just reopened its borders. 
what do we think, Anna? Do you think that there's an opportunity here to, to get more travelers, not just into Brunei, but, but out of Brunei as well? Yeah, exactly. There definitely is. And I think that was one of the comments that the Malaysian tourism minister here made, that the fact that Brunei has now opened up these land borders meant that Malaysia then had the confidence to further increase their arrival targets numbers as well. I think they had said, well, you know, now that Brunei is opening up, we had this previous target of 4 million. We're definitely going to hit that 4 million now you guys have opened up. Um, so they're definitely seeing, it, at least in Malaysia, as that opportunity to to boost arrivals, even if you're talking about intra-Borneo kind of travel just within Malaysia itself, you know, between Sabah and Sarawak, opening of Brunei also makes that easier too, um, logistically, as it's sat kind of in the middle of the two, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I was scrabbling for those figures when I was talking a minute ago, but these are the interesting figures. Back in 2019, 333,000 visitors to Brunei via air, 4.1 million across land or sea. So it's a, it's a big differential. Yeah, absolutely. So this is going to make a big difference both for Brunei, but for Sarawak and Sabah, the two states in, in Borneo for Malaysia as well. So it's, it's an interesting one. And like you say, we don't really cover Brunei so much. It's fairly small, but you know, there's, there's still things going on there. So that brings us to a close of our look back at the big stories of the past week. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and don't forget to send us your thoughts on comments on anything we discussed or anything we missed out. You can drop us a message on our LinkedIn page at the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Yep. Meanwhile, you can catch up with the Southeast Asia Travel Show's full back catalogue on our website, the seasiatravelshow.com. And of course, you can listen to every episode, including this one, on all the various international podcast platforms. Again, just search for the Southeast Asia Travel Show on each one. And if you tune in via Spotify or Apple Podcasts, if you could give us a quick rating and a review, that will help other people to find the show. So that's a wrap for today. And we'll both return next week. We look forward to talking to you then. <laughs>